Well, it's a joy and a privilege to be bringing God's word to you this morning, as we or this evening, as we start a new series on the prophet Micah, one of the uh, 12 minor prophets towards the end of your Bible. If you're looking for where it is, it's right after Jonah, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, right before Nahum. Um, and Micah is, a, as you're turning there, Micah, the name, as many prophets, as many Hebrew names did, means something important, something that shows us what the book is about. And Micah, his name means, who is like Yahweh? Who is like Yahweh? And of course, the implied answer is no one. No one is like Yahweh. In fact, that was the central tenet, we might say, of what the God's people believed. Of all the things out there, nothing was like Yahweh. And in fact, you'll see in the bulletin printed this evening that I have kept the um, the non-traditional, I guess maybe more traditional spelling of Yahweh with just the four letters, what they call the tetragrammaton. I know that sounds kind of weird, just means the four-lettered word, um, to communicate just how other, how different God is from us. See, the Hebrews, when they read the Old Testament, they came across the divine name, those four letters. They didn't even dare utter it. In fact, what we say at Yahweh, we have no idea if that's how it was actually pronounced. Instead, when they came across it, they would say Adonai, Lord. They wouldn't dare utter the name of the Lord upon their lips. Now, could that have been some superstition, perhaps? But what I think it communicates, and what I think keeping it in its original form of just the consonants communicates to us, is that God is completely different than us. There is no one, nothing like Yahweh. Even his very name is different than any other name. As we see in Philippians 2.9, it is the name above every name. And that's the, that's the heart of the God we worship, that he is, he has the name above every name. And it's the message of Micah for us as we look through this book. But we'll be starting this evening with Micah chapter 1, reading the whole chapter, verses 1 through 16. So let's give our attention to God's word. Now the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail, I will go stripped and naked, I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all in Bethlehem. Roll yourselves in the dust. 
pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zanan do not come out. The lamentation of Bethesel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Meroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds, the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Aksib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Mereshah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Thus ends God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the power of your word and that um, just as it was spoken by your prophet Micah um, 2,700 years ago, Lord, still it retains its power and still you are speaking to us today. Father, I pray that you would uh, open our hearts, open our ears, that we might hear and see and behold Christ, Lord, and the beauty of the gospel. I, thank this, I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so we are coming to this new book, Micah. We've always talked, already talked about what his name means, who is like Yahweh. But by way of an extended introduction tonight, before we get into the real meat of our sermon, I want to uh, not only introduce you to the book, but also to the historical circumstances of what was going on. Because it's important when we read prophets to understand what was happening to make them say things. It's so often easy to read the prophets, particularly the minor prophets, and just kind of look for life verses, right? I have no idea what Beth Lafra is. I don't know what any of this is, but I like this verse. So I'm going to cross-stitch this on my wall, right? We don't, quite underst- we don't have the historical context for what was happening. So we don't know how to read the prophets. We don't know how to understand them. So I think it's important to grasp, to understand what was happening at that time. And we know that Micah, obviously, he's a prophet. seemed that he was in the school of prophets that was started by Elisha some 100 years before. Uh, He had a lengthy ministry. He ministered for over 30 years, starting probably before 730 and going to at least 700. Uh, He was contemporaries with the great prophet Isaiah, who also had a lengthy ministry. Uh, And we actually see a remarkable amount of parallels between the two books. And you could almost say that Micah is the sort of Reader's Digest version of Isaiah. Micah is a sort of Reader's Digest version of Isaiah. And yet, as, as you see, they... It's not that they're disconnected, but they often can jump from one subject to another. And this book is not one long sermon. It's not a recording of like what I'm doing now that Micah gave to a people. Instead, what we have in this book, Micah, is 20 plus different oracles that he gave over his career. Right? He gave many different oracles, many different prophecies. And those have now been compiled, whether it be through Micah himself or someone else, have been compiled into three corresponding messages of judgment and hope. So as we go through the book, we'll see one section of judgment and hope, kind of chapters one through three, another section of judgment and hope, four through five, and then the final section of judgment and hope, six through seven. And while they sort of parallel each other, that judgment-hope pattern, they do build towards something. They build, as one commentator says, from total judgment in the first cycle to the messianic hope in the second 
And finally, in the third cycle, what God now requires of us. Or we could say the cycle communicates the gospel. The cycle communicates the the certain judgment of God, the sure promises of a Messiah, and lastly, what is now required of us. It is the gospel in eight chapters. The gospel presented to God's people 2,700 years ago. And yet also, key to to this book is that question in his name. Who is like Yahweh? And we'll see that as we move through these messages of judgment and hope, starting with the first message of judgment tonight, we see that the question remains, who can judge like Yahweh? And yet, who offers hope like Yahweh? Who can judge like Yahweh and who offers hope? Who can show mercy like Yahweh? So that's the, an overview of the book as we get started. But now, let's dive into some historical context. And I think, this is, as I've said, this is important for us to understand exactly what the prophet is talking about and what is being said. We see there, right in the first verse, that he had these oracles in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And we see in these three kings that they run the gamut, right, of ratings. So Jotham was a pretty good king. He, as Second Kings tells us, he was good, but he didn't remove the high places. Ahaz was one of the worst kings that, Israel, that Judah ever had. As we'll see, he even offered his own son to Baal. But we also have Hezekiah, who was one of the rare kings that was called good, just like his father David. We've got these three kings that run the gamut of what type of king Judah had. And they also run about, like I said, 35 plus years of reign. And to understand this message of judgment that is coming in Micah 1, we have to go back in time a little bit, to go back in time to, um, in Israel, to around 760 B.C. In 760 B.C., the king in Israel was a guy named Menahem. And Menahem, to make sure that his reign was supreme, he contacted the, the big kid on the block, Assyria, their king, Pul, and said, Pul, why don't you come and help me Make sure that I'm going to stay king for a while. So Paul came and helped, but he didn't just brush it off and say, hey, get me next time, Menahem, all right? Instead, what Israel became was a vassal state to Assyria. So now what that meant was every year, Israel had to send a certain amount of silver, gold, sheep, flock, herds, whatever, to Assyria to pay for their continued protection. So that happened around 760 B.C., And then, just two generations later, his grandson, Pekah, is now on the throne. And Pekah, he doesn't like sending his flocks and herds to Assyria every year. He wants all the silver and gold. It's all supposed to be his. He's the king. So he makes a deal with with a guy named Rezin, who was the king of Damascus, or Syria. So don't get confused. There's Syria just to the northwest of Israel, and there's Assyria further west, all right? And Assyria was the big dog, Syria was kind of so-so, and Israel was also kind of so-so. And this king of Israel, Pekah, makes an agreement with Rezin, saying, hey, we don't like this back and forth of sending stuff to Assyria. Let's me and you make an agreement to fight against them, to cast off the yoke of Assyria. 
So they do. They form an alliance between Damascus, a.k.a. Syria, and Israel. But they're also no dummies. They know that Assyria is not the, the guy. They're not the country to mess with, right? The, the stories of what they did to the lands they conquered are terrible. They were not kind to those who decided to stop paying their, their uh, tribute. And so Pekah, king of Israel, has this great idea. He says, hey, we're going to need some help. And I bet you I can get our brothers, Judah, down in the south to come and help us. So they ask, and it was then at that time, actually Jotham, or not Jotham, it was Jotham's father who was on the throne. And Jotham, and they come to Jotham's father and say, hey, buddy, come and help us fight Assyria. And he says, nope, not going to do it. So like all of us who don't get what we want, we suddenly turn violent. And they, he started to invade Judah to try and get them to force them to team up with them in their fight against Assyria. And then in the time of Jotham, and Ahaz as well, they suddenly make their way to the very gates of Jerusalem. So Israel and Damascus are now bombarding Judah, getting them to come onto their side. And Ahaz and his father, like his, and, and his father Jotham as well, are both realize the bind that they're in. So they say, hey, who better to turn to than Assyria themselves, right? So in order to defend themselves against Israel, they turn to Assyria. And this king, their king now is a guy named Tiglath-Pileser. They say, Tiglath, listen, these people, they're supposed to be yours. They're not doing what they're supposed to, and they're attacking us. So will you come, defend us, do what you need to with them, and just make sure we're alive? And Tiglath, being the gracious, uh, uh, what what word am I thinking for? Um, Monarch. Super powerful guy, I totally forgot the word, despot maybe, being the good despot that he is, comes in, he rescues Judah from Israel and Damascus, he wipes out, doesn't really wipe out, he takes control of the whole northwest side of Israel, ships captives, removes Pekah from the throne, sets in a new guy, and basically reduces Israel to nothing more than a puppet kingdom. So that's where we find ourselves, this coming judgment for Israel, who would later, just 10 years later, find themselves totally demolished once again in 722. And yet the story doesn't quite end there because you see Hezekiah, he's the good king. He's the good king, like I said, and he is the son of Ahaz. And all this happened in the mid-730s into the 720s. And yet in 701, Hezekiah, like I said, the good king, decides that he also is fed up with paying tribute to Assyria. That he also decides no longer to pay back what Assyria did for them to Judah. And so this time, a guy named Shalmaneser V, he decides to not pay his tribute anymore. And so just like last time, Assyria comes knocking, wondering where their tribute was. And you can probably know the name Sennacherib, right, from uh, Isaiah, the Assyrian emperor who came and knocked on the doors of Jerusalem. And yet we see that even but then, unlike Israel in 730 and 722, God delivered them from the hands of Assyria. God delivered Judah from the hands of Assyria. Now that's a lot. So that's, a, that's 50, 40, 50 years of ancient Near East history in about five minutes. So hope you guys are still awake. 
And yet it's important because Micah's ministry oversaw all of that. He oversaw, his, in his ministry, he saw uh, Pekah and Damascus coming in and waging war against Judah. He saw Assyria come in and first take away the northern kingdom, and then again in 722 come and demolish it, wipe it out once and for all. And he also saw when Sennacherib and Shalmaneser V came in and besieged Jerusalem. And yet, all, and through all this, he has the coming message of judgment and yet also the message of hope. And again, as we begin our passage tonight, what I want to talk with us tonight about is just this judgment. Who can judge like Yahweh? Who is a judge like Yahweh? And our text this evening gives us three points, I believe, about God's judgment. First, God's judgment is imminent, imminent with an I, not with an A. Then God's judgment is righteous. Lastly, God's judgment is total. The God, the judge of the earth, the one who is, there is none like him, his judgment is imminent, it is righteous, and lastly, it is total. This is the God who comes to judge Israel, who comes to judge Judah, and even as we'll see, comes to judge us as well. But let's start. We see that the prophet Micah in verses 2 and 3 is not just bringing a word of warning. Right? It's not just a man running through the town telling news of a coming invasion or anything like that, but rather it is the prophet Micah announcing a court trial between God and the nations. He's announcing a court trial between God and the nations. And we see God coming out of his holy temple, the passage tells us. As verse, two say, uh, verse three says, he is coming from his own place. God is coming from heaven to judge the nations. And we must underscore the way that the ESV has translated verse three. Look at that. He says, for behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. It's not that he has come, it's not that he will come, but he is coming now. Right now, he is coming. And that's a, that's a terrifying statement, is it not? That God is coming. It's not some long, distant memory of God who came once. It's not some empty promise of a future coming. But it's God, in all of his terror, all of his glory, might and power coming now. Yahweh is coming. And notice how Micah describes this coming of God. Mountains melt, valleys split open. We see creation itself being unmade when God comes in judgment. The God who is himself life also comes like a fiery furnace, and destroys all that stand in his way. As Dale Ralph Davis says, this is not the arrival of a denominational committee, but this is the advent of the Lord of all the earth. This is the coming of the king like whom there is no other to judge his people. 
and what verses two and three, and all throughout the prophets when God comes, the simple fact is, it is a terrible, terrifying thing. Many of you may know Annie Dillard, um, the, the Christian, Christian, I think she's a Christian, but she uh, an author, and in her book, Teaching a Stone to Talk, she has what I believe to be one of the most poignant descriptions of worship. Here's what she says. She says, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Hey, it's often easy to come into a well-dressed, well-kempt sanctuary and forget that the God we worship is the God who makes mountains melt beneath his feet. That he is the God who, when his voice shouts, cedars break. Nations are ripped apart by the power of his word. This is the God we come to worship. He comes to us in love and mercy, but he also comes in judgment. And his judgment is imminent. His judgment is coming We see this described by Jesus himself in Matthew 24, that he returns, he comes like a thief in the night. We have no idea when this God of judgment will return, but he is coming any day now. And every day that passes just means we're one day closer to that great and final day. So God's judgment is imminent. It's closer than you think. But secondly, God's judgment is righteous. God's judgment is righteous. And we see all the way down to, in verse 7, we see the real target of his attack. The real target of his condemnation. He says, all her, that is Samaria, all her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her profit, or all her idols I will lay waste. So the real target of God's judgment is the idolatry, right? the idolatry that had plagued and consumed Samaria and Jerusalem. We see that all the sins that, had, that began to characterize Samaria and Judah, whether it be promiscuity, oppression, all these different things are founded upon the simple fact that they had replaced Yahweh with Baal. They had replaced the king of kings with Asherah poles. They had traded the one who was literally above every name for gods who had names just like you and me. This had begun with Jeroboam 200 years ago in the northern kingdom when he set up idols in Dan and Bethel on the northern and southernmost points of the northern kingdom. 
And from there, it only got worse. It only spread as idolatry continued to consume God's people generation after generation. And it wasn't just Samaria, but we see here that it's Judah even. Judah, the the wound, the incurable disease had found its way to the very gates of God's city. This idolatry was infecting every part of God's people and leading them to commit the most heinous of sins. You see there in the, the last half of verse 7, for, the fee, for from the fee of prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of prostitute they shall return. I know that seems really random to throw a verse like that into here. And obviously there is the, the idea that any sort of false worship, any sort of idolatry is spiritual adultery to our God. And yet he's also showing just how dark, just how twisted these idols were. Because prostitution was a key part of Baal worship. It was a key part of Asherah worship. And that's where Samaria had made her millions by giving up their money, their gold, their silver, their cattle in order to partake of this cultic worship. As we'll see, they will take those and return them to other idolatrous nations. As I said, Ahaz, one of the worst kings Judah ever saw, being one of the few to actually sacrifice his son to the Baals. And all these sins trickle back to the simple fact that we want to worship anyone, anything other than God. That we want to worship anyone and anything other than God. And God's justice demands satisfaction for that. See, when God comes to judge, he doesn't just come judging like someone's feelings, with someone, someone whose feelings have been hurt. Right? He's not just a petty boss who said, who's trying to get back at his employees because they didn't treat him the way he thought he should be treated. But this is the holy God, again, the one like whom there is no other, coming to judge and satisfy his wrath. It is totally righteous. But lastly, God's judgment is total. God's judgment is total. We see here that, or we can ask as we read these passages, who exactly is in view here? Who is Micah talking about that God is coming to judge? And we see three different people groups listed, don't we? We see first in verse 2, Pay attention, O earth. He's coming to judge the earth. We also see Samaria, the northern kingdom. And then we see, lastly, Judah. And we can say, looking at all these three, God is coming to judge everyone. God is coming to judge everyone, the entire earth. And it's not, it's, as I said, it's not just Samaria. It's not just the earth, all the foreign pagan idolaters out there, but it's God's own people, Judah, the people who came from the very line of David. You can almost imagine Judah listening to Micah, right, him talking about God coming to judge the nations, God coming to judge Samaria. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. 
those terrible people getting what they deserve. And he says, and also Judah. Right? They loved the idea of God coming to judge their enemies. But they hated, as Jeremiah 26 shows us, they hated the idea of God judging themselves. And we see in this total, total judgment, God coming to judge not just the world, not just Samaria, but even Judah, Jerusalem itself. We see him list in verses 10 through 16, 12 different towns on the western side of the nation, 12 villages that would be swept up and fall to Sennacherib when he would come in 701. And they're listed in a sort of poetic fashion. We see in verse 10 right there, tell it not in Gath. Right? And as Caleb pointed out to me, because I don't have the encyclopedic Bible knowledge like he does, that that comes from 2 Samuel 2 or 3, I can't quite remember. But right when, when Saul and Jonathan are, are killed by enemy forces, David says, tell it not in Gath. Right? Tell it not in Gath. God's king has fallen. And Micah is using this proverb, this well-known saying, to show us something far worse than the end of a kingly line is here. It's not just the end of Jonathan and Saul, but it's the end of Judah. We see this, this other place, Bethlehem, right? Where here Micah begins to use a, a sort of play on words. The house of dust will find itself in dust. Shafir, the town of beauty, will now go about in nakedness and shame. Maroth, in verse 12, the town of bitterness, will wait anxiously for good things, but instead will only receive bitterness. Or even Jerusalem, right? The city of peace. The city of peace will receive disaster. And even, in, even Lachish, the great town known for its war horses, right? They would no longer harness war horses for chariots, but instead they'd be harnessing horses to get out of Dodge, fleeing from the enemy to come. And we see in the last half of verse 13 this, this aside about Lachish, that it was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgression of Israel. And here Micah is showing us by the Holy Spirit where their sin began, not just in idolatry, but in the belief that they were totally sufficient. Because you see, Lachish was, as I said, the place of war horses. And it was Judah's, the southern kingdom's belief that they had military might, military dependence, that they began to turn away from Yahweh. And in some Poetic irony, Lachish would become Sennacherib's, Assyria's main headquarters when they would come and invade Judah. So the very place that was their military might would now become the place where their assailants came from. On and on it goes, and we will see only more of the promised judgment. And yet, at the end of the day, it shows us that, as I have said, that God's judgment is total. It comes to the world, it comes for those who are evil and wicked, and that means that it comes for God's people. That means it comes for us. These opening verses, this opening chapter of Micah 
is a striking picture of God's judgment. It points to the fact that, as asked by the very name of the prophet, there is no one who judges like Yahweh. Only his judgment is imminent. Only his judgment is righteous. Only his judgment is total. Right, it's close at hand. It's right here. We'll never know exactly when it comes. It's righteous. As a God whose glory and honor have been offended by sin, he is right and good to judge the guilty. And lastly, it is total. God's judgment is not just for those out there. It is not just for the really, really bad. But it's for everyone. And God's people are no exception. Each of us in this room tonight will find ourselves facing this judgment described here. And you've got one of two options. Either you've been pure every second of every day for your entire life. You've, up, you've upheld the law perfectly in every respect. But I'm going to guess that's not an option for you. But there's a second option. That you've been washed with the blood of Christ and bear his name upon your forehead. See, the only hope that sinners, you and me, have before judgment as awesome as this is that that same judgment has already fallen upon someone else. That our Passover lamb has shed his blood and has now marked us clean. That's the only way we escape this judgment. As we'll sing here in just a moment, these marvelous words from John Newton. Let us wonder grace and justice, join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. This justice that demands all will smile when we have our trust in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this word. We thank you for the sobering reality that your judgment is coming. The judgment that melts the mountains and splits open valleys, Lord, is coming before us. Father, would you teach us to um, have deeper faith in Christ? Would you show us the life that you would have us live as we continue our look through this book of Micah? Lord, we thank you again and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.